Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Um, if you guys have your Bible, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 14. Um, if you guys don't know who I am, my name is Josh, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the District Church, and it is always a joy, always an honor to be able to open up God's Word with you in worship uh, through learning more about the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's my prayer this morning is that we would be able to grow in that knowledge and grace. Um, This week is going to be a little bit different for those of you who know my personality and know me. I'm very type A. Uh, I like lists. I like points. And I am apologizing right now that that's probably not going to be how this sermon flows. Um, This week has been one of a very strange pattern, Um, maybe not even a pattern, just an anomaly really. Um, Dwayne was supposed to preach this week and he got sick, Uh, so I got asked to preach on Thursday, and uh, for me that doesn't tend to be a lot of time, so I said yes, said let's preach the gospel. So today's just going to be a very basic, stripped down, uh, looking at a passage um, of gospel going out, the power of the gospel being proclaimed, um, and misplaced hope uh, found in these um, pagan cities as we see, the Gentile cities uh, that Paul and Barnabas are preaching at. So we'll see this in Acts chapter 14. Uh, I will try to give you some, like, either title or understanding of what's going on in the passage, um, but it it is really going to be more like a narrative, um, and, and we'll draw some application from it. So Hopefully it'll actually be the shortest sermon you've ever heard me preach, but we'll see how that goes. Um, Yeah, exactly. So Acts chapter 14, um, we're going to kind of break this down into three little sections here. And what you'll notice is that uh, there is this same parallel pattern uh, that we've seen Luke write from 13 and 14 uh, that parallels Acts chapter 3 and 4. And there's an importance to that. So I want to lay that before you. Uh, Because as we continue down this chapter, you'll see why Luke writes this way. But what I want us to remember first and foremost is the book of Acts is not written specifically to us. The book of Acts is written as a story to the great Theophilus, Theo as we can call him. And Luke is writing this story to show how the gospel has spread, how, as Jesus put in Acts 1-8, has gone out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And I think it's important for us to remember this context because in this passage that we'll see and then the parallel stories that we see from Acts 3 and 4, Luke is drawing Theo's memory. He's drawing on Theophilus' memory to see how the gospel is going forth in each one of these chapters. So I think it's important for us to remember that and reflect on that and to lay that before you so that we too can take part in the remembrance that Luke is trying to pull from the memory of Theophilus. So let's start in Acts chapter 14, looking at the first place that Paul and Barnabas go, which is Iconium. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, 
who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So this is the first part of this story here. And we see the same pattern that we see throughout Paul and Barnabas' ministry. They go into a city, they go into a synagogue, they preach the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And we see the proclamation once again brings opposition. Now, I know that we've talked about this over and over and over again, that the gospel is going to bring opposition, but I think it's important to be reminded of this over and over. Because things like the division, things like the poison that's being stirred in Iconium shouldn't shock us as we read this story because we've seen the growth of the gospel happen because of this opposition. And it's important for us to remember that this same gospel that Paul and Barnabas are preaching is the same gospel that we should be proclaiming and we should understand and not be shocked when opposition comes. We see in this passage that there's poison among the city. And what Luke is drawing out here is it's, it's not a poison or opposition that these leaders are standing in front of Paul and Barnabas trying to oppose them, but it's more behind the scenes. What they're trying to do is they're trying to build distrust within the people who are hearing the gospel. They're trying to defame, and they're trying to slander Paul and Barnabas so that any of the hearers would not trust what they have to say. Very much like if you were to poison a drink, and if you were to just put small droplets of poison as the person drank, they would continue to get sick this is the picture that Luke is showing us here. They're sowing distrust. They're trying to make the city not trust the apostles. And yet this is, again, what the gospel does. This is what the gospel brings. Second Corinthians tells us that the gospel is a fragrant aroma to some and a stench of death to others. As Duane preached last week, you can't be indifferent to the gospel. You can't be indifferent to the gospel. And if somebody hears it and they are indifferent to it, it means they truly haven't heard it. Because it's a fragrant aroma to those being saved and it is a stench of death to those who are perishing. And so this is the beginning of this story that we see here in Iconium. Yet, we see in verse 3, I, I love how Luke phrases this, this choice that Paul and Barnabas make. He says, so they remained. So they remained for a long time. It's almost as if Luke is saying that people were trying to make Paul and Barnabas seem like liars somebody you can't trust, and yet Luke is saying, in spite of this. See, the, the apostles knew, and in spite of this, they stayed and they preached the gospel for a long time. 
Now, when I read this story, I think in the midst of opposition, in the midst of the most unideal circumstance, would I have stayed? Would you have stayed? People are slandering you, trying to build distrust about what you're saying and what you believe and your character and that opposition coming against you, would you stay? Or would you see it as a time in which God may be closing a door and they, that you need to ultimately leave? See, what the apostles did is they stayed despite what was going on. They remained despite the difficulty, despite the circumstances. And even in the most unideal, they preached the gospel. They proclaimed the word of God, even when people were talking about them behind their backs. Have you ever noticed this, that even people who live out the life of the gospel, who are wise, who are generous, there are, there are still people that just don't like them? It's so interesting that we see Paul and Barnabas coming in, preaching a gospel that is going to help the city flourish, and yet there is still men and women who are trying to show that they are not people they should listen to. And yet Paul and Barnabas stay. And so what we can draw from this is that sometimes God will call us to places that are uncomfortable, that bring opposition, that are difficult circumstances, and he calls us to stay despite those circumstances. Sometimes God calls us to jobs or relationships or cities and calls us to stay in order for the gospel to be preached despite our circumstances. And then for us, what we receive from that is growth. We receive growth in the gospel. We receive growth in being made in the image of Christ. And oftentimes we would look at scenarios like this, if we were to put ourselves in the apostles' shoes, we might leave because of that opposition. When God is in fact saying, no, stay, I'm growing you, and I'm also using you to grow the gospel, to grow the kingdom. So God uses them. He, he controls their circumstance, their scenario in which they are preaching the gospel. And then... Ultimately, time is up, and he calls them out. They hear of the, the plot against their lives, and then they leave. And as we'll learn next week, they ultimately come back to these people that are trying to kill them to continue to preach the gospel. But let's continue this story here and see that the gospel brings power in the city of Lystra. So going to verse 8, now in Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. You see, what's interesting about this miracle is that Luke would highlight this man being crippled, and then being healed. It's almost as if Luke is again calling back to Acts 3 and 4, reminding us of what happened in Jerusalem, where Peter almost exactly did the same thing, seeing a man crippled and lame from birth, looked intently at him, 
Again, this is a letter to his friend Theophilus, reminding him and helping him to remember that God is moving and God is completing the Acts 1-8 call of the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this here, this parallel from from Acts 3 and 4, this story of Peter is a reminder to Theophilus and a reminder as well to us 2,000 years later that the needs of this man, the needs of the city, the needs of the Gentile world is the power of the gospel. That power of the gospel is the same in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It doesn't change. The power of the gospel was where Peter's ministry grew. And it's the power of the gospel that we see here in Paul and Barnabas' ministry begin to grow in the Gentile world. And the beauty of this text is that it's not just about the Jew and the Gentile. You see, that's what Luke is showing us here is that the power of the gospel is needed in both Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. It's the same power. But he also does something interesting about the city he decides to highlight. You see, Iconium and Lystra could be on opposite ends of the spectrum. And what Luke is doing is showing that the gospel crosses not just Jew and Gentile, but crosses socioeconomic statuses, it crosses class. And we see this here in the example of these two cities. You see, Lystra had a reputation of being somewhat rustic. And what I mean by rustic is not the hipster rustic, right? It's not bare walls and like, I don't know, go take some pictures out front of like these brick buildings. That's not what is being talked about here. But Lystra had a reputation of being poor, of being hillbilly. People were not smart, as historians would say about the Lystronians. These people were regarded as aggressive, hard to control, and they had little regard for civil law. They were full of robbers. They were a source of much trouble for the Roman government. And living among the mountains. I just drove through West Virginia, and so this is what I think about. It's like eastern West Virginia, or western West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, Tennessee. I might be throwing some people under the bus there, but this is who I think about when, when I read the description of Lystra. is these hillbilly podunk people, and then Iconium is the civilized. And so what you see here is a gospel proclamation to both the most civilized and the most rustic. Luke is showing Theophilus and showing us the same basic need of the gospel is everywhere. The same basic need for the gospel, the power to save, the power to heal, is needed everywhere. From the country to the city, to the civilized, to the hillbilly, to the rustic, the gospel is needed everywhere. Now what is this basic need? We find it in this crippled man. The basic need of the gospel is because of sin, 
we were once broken. You were once broken and unable to save yourself. And you needed something outside of yourself to come and heal you. That's the basic need of the gospel. Is that you and I could not do anything to save ourselves. Yet God came, drawing us to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ to heal us to restore us, to give us joy and hope. As Mark 2.17 says, Jesus did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. This was you and I before God called us to himself. This is why we sing that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The basic need of the gospel is that we were once wretched, broken, and in need of saving, in need of healing, in need of restoration. And Christ came and died. He lived the perfect life that we could not live, died the death we so rightly deserve, and rose from the grave, sealing our election as sons and daughters of God. And just as we once needed this basic gospel, the world around us needs the same. And Jesus has come to do this. Jesus has come to bring the good news to the poor, to bring the good news to the brokenhearted, to give liberty to the captives and to set the prisoners free. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, whether you live in Carmel, or the Near East Side, whether you're on Fountain Square or up north, whether you're in the city or the country, the basic need of the gospel is still the same. For the Jew, the Gentile, the rebellious, the self-righteous, the same basic gospel is needed everywhere, and it is our job as believers in Christ to go and share that power to go and share that truth that Christ has come to restore us, to heal us, to give us hope, and to give us joy in this life and the life to come. That's why Romans 1.16 says, it is the power of salvation. This is what the gospel does. And it is our job to go and share it. Finally, what we see in this last part of this section, this very interesting response to the gospel. If you remember a couple weeks ago when Paul came up to some Jews and preached the gospel to them, what did he do? He, he called back to the Old Testament and reminded them of the story of where they once were and how they got here. But as we'll see, these people in Lystra give a different response. A very interesting, interesting response to Paul healing this man. So look with me in verse 11. It says, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest, the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, 
They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. Now, I know that this may come as a shock, but I have never had anybody come and worship me based on anything I've done. Uh, I think the, the closest thing, when I read this story, I, I, I start to think of uh, something that happened between Dwayne and I. Um, when we first started going to Indie Coffee Roasters and started becoming friends with the owners and people in there, um, Dwayne would go often, and uh, I think I came once or twice, and in that once or twice coming, one of the owners came up to Dwayne afterwards and said, it was so nice to meet your boss. And I was like, Dwayne told me that story, and I'm never going to let him live it down. Um, but this is, what I, this, is the, this is the picture that I see, right? Paul is the one that's really, like, leading this charge, and yet the Lyconians think that because Barnabas didn't really speak that he was Zeus, he was the God that led the charge, and Paul was not so much in charge. But we see this interesting story of these people hearing, or hearing about and seeing the power of the gospel, and so they ultimately think because of their background and because of their belief in mythology and thousands of gods that they believe that the gods have descended upon them. And I'm, I'll tell you why in a moment, but the first thing I want to point out in this story is the humility that we find in Paul and Barnabas. And I find this important for us to see because we live in a world where pride and the uplifting of who we are is, it's nice, right? It's nice to put a picture up on Instagram and get a thousand likes. It's nice to put things up on Facebook and, and for people to like it, comment on it, admire it, acknowledge it, and, and be amazed at what you've put up. Right? It's nice to receive those compliments. But if we're honest and we look at this story, how many of us would have responded like Paul and Barnabas? How many of us would have stood up there and maybe for a millisecond liked the response to the praise that they received? And yet here's what Paul and Barnabas do. They recognize that they shouldn't be receiving this praise or glory and they tear their garments and they try to show these men and women who are freaking out about this miracle, try to show them, hey, we're just men like you, but we serve a great God who gives us this power. And so we see the humility of Paul and Barnabas and, and it should challenge us, especially in a day and age where praise is desired. And humility is looked down upon. So we see in this story a very interesting revelation of how these Lyconians respond. 
It's always interesting to see in circumstances or situations how people respond ultimately reveal what's deep down within them, right? You can look at a tree, as Jesus says, and judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. And what he means by that is that when you look at a tree and see the fruit and you eat that fruit, if it's good fruit, that you know that the roots and the source are found in something good, something refreshing. And if it's bad fruit, then most likely the roots are dug into something deep that's poisonous that's destroying the tree. And so we see in how they responded that these Lyconians had a misplaced hope. They had a misplaced hope that the gods, Zeus and Hermes, had come visited them again. And I say again because there is a myth in this area, in this city, about a half a century before Paul and Barnabas get to this city, that Zeus and Hermes had actually visited this town. And the myth goes that as Zeus and Hermes are walking around this town, they, they are just like regular men. And they're looking for people to acknowledge and serve them. And after they walk around the city and meet hundreds, thousands of people, nobody serves them. Nobody acknowledges them except one couple. Philemon, and I don't even know how to say his wife's name, Baucus. And so what Zeus and Hermes do is that they ultimately bless this couple, build them a temple, and then even after death, allow them to grow in a tree, and they destroy the rest of the city. Now again, this is a myth. This didn't really happen. But the city is so ingrained in this mythology that they are in fear here in this story that the gods had come again. That they had placed their hope in not being destroyed and so they came and they began to worship Paul and Barnabas. And their hope was out of fear and they were hoping that blessings would fall upon them just as it did this couple. It's an interesting revelation of where this hope was placed. And as I stated before, unlike last time where Paul's sermon was dedicated to the story of the Old Testament, what Paul does here is he contextualizes the gospel. He's trying to show these people in the way they live, in the context in which they have been brought up, that there isn't actually thousands of gods, there isn't a Zeus and a Hermes, but in fact there is one living God who has been here the whole time, that has blessed you, that has given you all that you desire in food and joy and gladness. And that there is hope in him. That you don't have to fear this Zeus or this Hermes or this far off God that if you don't serve him, he'll destroy you. But in fact, there is a living God who's not far off, but has made himself known through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through his word, and even through nature, the natural revelation that you see around you. 
Now, it's interesting to see how this story ends because it doesn't seem like Paul even got out of his introduction for his sermon before people began to worship them. And most scholars would actually believe that Paul's sermon was cut off. And it would make sense because it just flows that way. But I believe that even if Paul wasn't cut off, I believe that he would have continued on contrasting the comparison between Zeus and the living God. He would have contrasted and shown that this living God is not a vengeful God. He's not a God that came down to earth looking for his creation to serve him in a disguise and then ultimately destroying them because his arrogance wasn't filled up. The, this living God was not far off, but he came. He actually did come in the form of a man, but he came not in arrogance, not in desiring to be served, but he came in humility. He came to serve, and he didn't come to destroy and to put his people to death when they didn't serve him, but he came in order to die for them so that they would have life and life abundantly. Christ came being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even on a cross. This is what I believe Paul would have went into in comparing this living God to this deistic mythology in Zeus. And this is the contextualization that we can draw from these passages in that we need to be able to understand the context in which people bring to the table and then how to draw the gospel out of that context and show them that God is in fact greater. This living God, this hope that you long for, it can be found in Jesus. It is a challenge to myself and it should be a challenge to us all in how we preach the gospel. How we contextualize the gospel to where we are and to the people around us. But I also want to point out for us today that this misplaced hope hasn't changed. It may not be in the form of mythical gods, although some religions still do practice that. It may not be in the worship of these idols, but you and I have misplaced hopes that find their foundation in non-eternal sources. The world around us has misplaced hopes. I know that if I polled each and every one of you in here, you could tell me about people in your life that have these misplaced hopes, that have placed their hope in something that will never satisfy or fill the void they are longing to be filled. Whether it be their jobs, their spouses, their neighborhoods, their families, their finances, their security, whatever it may be, and the only remedy for them is the gospel. The only remedy for them is to show them that Jesus is this hope. 
He is the only thing that can fill these voids. So the question for us this morning is, where have we placed our hopes? Even as believers in Christ, because we are affected by sin, because we are still battling the flesh, we have these misplaced hopes. So where are yours this morning? Is it in your natural ability to create? Do you have a misplaced hope in your own confidence, in your own self? Is a misplaced hope in your spouse or your kids or your family, how your legacy is being left? Or is it your job? I'm going to be honest with you this morning. I found that one of my misplaced hopes was in believing that I had to have it all together and looking like I had to have it all together. And it came about this week when I was like, yeah, Dwayne, I will preach. And then I began to prep for this sermon and realized that three days is, doesn't feel like it's enough time. And I began to freak out even this morning because I didn't feel like my sermon prep and the schedule and how I wanted to control what I needed to do to prepare for this sermon was enough. Yet here we are. The Holy Spirit working on me and revealing to me that control is just an illusion. And I need to stop trying to hold on to it. But how crazy, think about this for a second, how crazy is it for me and for us to think that we have to make people believe we have it all together. Because if you know me well enough, you know that I don't. I don't have it all together. And yet God was fully aware that Dwayne would be sick, that I would be traveling back and forth from North Carolina, and that we would have very little time to try to do sermon prep. He was fully aware. He was not shocked of what was going on, and yet here we are. So why did I stress in an unhealthy way? Why do I have misplaced hopes in trying to make sure you guys feel like I've got it all together? And then let's, let's flip this role. Why do we, why do you guys think that you have to have it all together or make it look like you have to have it all together? Why do we find ourselves having these misplaced hopes in these situations and scenarios? When in fact the God... The God of this universe calls us to transparency. To show our weaknesses and our failures as a part of growing us, as a part of growing others. You see the freedom in that? The freedom in not having to make it look like we've got it all together? That's just one misplaced hope that I find most people have. But where is yours. If you don't know, God tells you you can ask. And he will reveal it through, through the working of the Holy Spirit. Maybe somebody else in your life will help you see that so that you then can begin to grow. Where are your misplaced hopes? So I'm going to close this morning the same way we do every single week. The band can come on down. We're going to take communion. I don't know if you're in here and you're like the man who is broken in need of healing. 
I don't know if you're exhausted because of placing hope in non-eternal things that are vanity and will never fully satisfy. Maybe you're in here and you're just like, Josh, this sermon was a downer. (laughs) That's not where I'm at this morning. And that's good. I want you to praise God for those seasons. But if you're in here, there needs to be healing within your life or if there's an exhaustion because you've placed hope in non-eternal, vain sources. But I want you to be reminded of what communion is all about. That in Christ, all of our hopes are satisfied. That in Christ, all of our brokenness and our wounds are healed. That in him, we are no longer slaves to sin and the bondage of it. As the hymn says, our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. He is where we find this hope, this healing. And this is what the power of the gospel reveals to us. And this is what the power of the gospel helps us live in, this truth that we have. And yes, the bread and the juice, they are, they're symbols of what Christ has done on the cross in shedding his blood and breaking his body, but it is a reminder of what he's done and then who we are in him. So we're going to take some time. Maybe you need some time to just reflect on this sermon or what the Holy Spirit is impressing on your heart. We're going to take some time to do that. And each week, as I, as I talk about communion, I, I want us to remember the, the aspects of of what communion is all about. That Christ has done what we could not do. That Christ came and healed us when we were broken and could not save ourselves. So if you need time to reflect on that, if there is sin that needs to be repented of, do so. If there is a relationship that needs to be healed, go and do that, as Scripture says, before you even approach communion and then come back and celebrate that restoration. Well, we're going to take some time now to just remember, reflect, and go and celebrate what Christ has done. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at